Hey folks, welcome to McKinsey Talks Talent with Brian Hancock and Bill Shanninger, both talent experts and leaders in McKinsey's organization practice. I'm Lucia Rahili. Last time on McKinsey Talks Talent, we talked about the financial risks of neglecting your people strategy. This time out, we're going to get really specific about how some of this applies to a particular function. I mean, there's a reason why Alec Baldwin, you know, in the famous lines, you know, put back that coffee. Coffee is for closers because there is something about being a closer and you can know what that is analytically. And what we're seeing is that when companies take that analytic view to who's a closer, take that analytic view to who helps grow the relationships over time, when all other things are being held equal, it comes to the people. And who unlocks the people? It's HR. Stay tuned. More coming up. Hey, guys. Welcome. Hey. Hey. Thanks for having us again. Great to see you. Today, we'll explore how taking a data-driven approach to managing talent in your sales force can step up top-line growth. Brian, you want to translate that for us? Yeah. I mean, I think what you're saying is HR can help sales make more money. Yeah, you got it. And that is something that (laughs) every salesperson likes to hear. Like, how can I make more money? How can I help close the deal? And what we realize, having looked at this analytically, are there lots of potential levers to improve sales? It can be your coverage model. It can be the selling proposition. It can be the pricing, all the elements. But when you have those as constant, the better salesperson closes the deal. I mean, there's a reason why Alec Baldwin, you know, in the famous lines, you know, put back that coffee. Coffee is for closers because there is something about being a closer and you can know what that is analytically. And what we're seeing is that when companies take that analytic view to who's a closer, take that analytic view to who helps grow the relationships over time, when all other things are being held equal, it comes to the people. And who unlocks the people? It's HR. So this is one of the few times when HR gets to walk in the room to the CEO, to the head of sales and said, I can help you make more money. And the cool thing is we've done this in B2B sales contexts, you know, so thinking selling, you know, industrial materials from one company to another. We've done this in, um, restaurants where we've actually analytically figured out, you know, what kind of cashier at a burger chain actually generates more sales. And the results are real and it's not hard to do. You just have to put analytics to the problem. So uh, how does this relate to customer lifetime value? Where's this coming from? It is remarkable how we'll apply rigor to customers but not apply the same rigor to employees. It says something to me that our social media platforms are able to predict when we're having an affair and what product we might want to buy, but we can't predict what's going to be really impactful to our employees. And it's just, it should be unacceptable. What is the kind of data that tells you that a performer is going to be star talent over the course of a a lifetime? The the data uh, varies, varies and, and you and you need to pull in data from lots of different sources. So, you know, Bill can actually tell the story. You know, we did the start of this one together at a, you know, well-known fast food chain. And they started and they looked and they said, we think our burgers, chicken and fries are about as good as everybody else. Food quality seems to be similar. So we want to look at the people. 
And so we're like, well, that's an interesting proposition. You know, let's figure out the people you have. But that's not just a matter of take a paper and pencil assessment. That really requires a much broader understanding of who you have, their background, their, um, you know, we had them wear smart badges so you could tell the balance of listening and talking they did over the course of the day, whether they were talking to a coworker, a manager, or a customer. We could analyze um, how long they'd been with the company, their education, their tr- a lot of pieces that then allowed us to do a really robust segmentation of the workforce. And what was interesting about it was the segments that they thought were most going to drive sales were the exact ones that weren't. Can you give an example of that? Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. They built the whole system around speed of service. So all their KPIs, everything they tracked. And not only, not only was it not correlated to uh, repeat sales, it might have even had a slight negative to customer satisfaction. Once people come into the store, they're not actually there. They're not there for the 30-second pit stop. They recognize that by going in, it's going to take a little longer. At that point, they'd really like their food order to be correct and for it to taste good. But they built their model based on speed. That meant all of the cues that they were giving to the employees were wrong. That's remarkable. I mean, I know it sounds really simple, but it like, could you get really clear on what your customers want? And then how that's going to translate to whether or not you make money. And then we could get into debunking the myths around the kind of people they needed. You know, like, for instance, they thought at the front counter that what you really needed was the uh, personable person. Right? Yeah. No. Why is that? No, because you spent too much time talking. And when you're talking, you may not actually be paying attention to getting the order exactly right. Do you know who is interested in getting the order exactly right? The person who's listening. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. That's right. right. Yeah, it's remarkable, right? Things like uh, pay attention, get it exactly right. So you know how you look at like like store managers, right? And you'd say, okay, so it must be that we need to overpay for somebody who was at one of those chains that Brian mentioned who was really good. And we'll get somebody who's been around 15 years. No, actually, that's a complete waste of money. Pretty much this job is repetitive. You learn almost everything you need to know in about 15 months. Go buy some people who've done that. You're not going to overpay, right? They're, they're going to get it. It's still new to them. They're still getting right. the feeling and ownership right. to it. Right. Or simple things like your store manager. How about you don't book meetings at points at which they actually need to be on the floor? Well, these are basics. But, I mean, get, you know, getting an order right, for example, that should be the sine qua non of any kind of customer service. Well, you'd think, right? But when, there's, when they're surrounded by distraction, mm-hmm. very quickly, it becomes about the distraction in front of you. Like, oh, I've got to respond to that as opposed to actually doing the thing that matters. You have to take this into account that the cacophony of noises and messages going on around them. You need somebody who can lock in on the procedure. Now, just think for a second. Some people really like routine. They might have a closet full of the same clothes. Those people are perfect for this setup. The natural entrepreneur is terrible because they want to change, try, do something different. And this whole model is built on, well, turn the crank, right? And so that, so one was just selection, was could we match up who people are and what they've done better? And then it was just simple things like, could we change the basics of the, of the people's experience? They, they knew nothing about the human dynamics part of it. You know, simple things like that. Like you'd have two or three star employees and you'd say, hey, we should load up the star employees on a Friday night, but we'll leave Sunday afternoon and Tuesday afternoon uncovered. So do you know where the complaints came in? 
Sunday afternoon and Tuesday afternoon. The people who give you the complaints and get the order wrong don't give a squat what day it happened on. Right. It just had happened and they're not going to come back. So this whole human and, and, and dynamic and talent part of it was pick the people you actually need based on data. Deploy them in a way that makes sense for your, your business model. And then reward them for the things they need to do, like getting the order right, not being really fast at getting it wrong. Now, if that sounds like Captain Obvious walked in, it's because it is. <laughs> no, but, but, to, but to me, what was super interesting about it is if you had the, you know, we ended up with four archetypes of folks, you know, the mm -hmm. social person who got distracted and gets it wrong, the entrepreneur who's always thinking, you know, hey, is there a better way for me to, to make your think there's a reason we have standard operating procedures. But the entrepreneur in an interview sounds really good. Yeah, the social person crushed the interview. Social person Because they were super chatty. So they wanted to hire them immediately. They were terrible. That's what I would be looking for if I were in that hiring role. Yeah. And then you had a few people that were on the managerial track and you need a little bit of them. But the person who doesn't get easily distracted. Wants to do a good job. Wants to do a good job. That the only person they talk to on their shift is the customer and their manager. That is super focused. These aren't the people that are social or entrepreneurial or future leaders, all of the things we think are desirable. They are just really good frontline workers at what they do. And what we found is when we started selecting for more just really good frontline workers who are good at what they do, conscientious, could filter out all the noise and, and get it done, those were the people least likely to be selected before. Now the selection was, you know, let's put those at 80%. You still need a few of the leaders. You need a little bit more of a mix, but you know. But think about that radical shift, and same store sales went up five percent. That's remarkable. And and it went up because it's the people that are driving the experience. And it was the main lever. I mean, there were some other things in the human dynamics that were changed, but the main lever was assessment. And when you assessed more of just who is just that really good, in a routine, can filter out the noise, frontline worker. And and that drove and that drove the sale and and now we're seeing that you know applied in other frontline contexts as well. But even just getting that assessment right in a retail or in this case a, a restaurant job, you know, rings the register. Sales is a particularly transparent function, right? Performance is super quantifiable across any given time interval. And we think about measuring sales over quarters or over years, typically. I think, Brian, what I'm hearing you say is that we start to assess the value of employees over the course of a career trajectory. How's that different? It is similar in that, you know, as you think about improving sales through people, improving revenue through people, one, one angle is at the very front end is selection. Are we getting the right people in the door? In the burger case, getting more of the right people in the door, that was the hit. In some of the sales environments, getting people who, you know, are more confident, less curious, you know, more direct on making the sale, that can have the hit. But then you need to think about that salesperson, that revenue generator over the course of their life. And one of the big uh, times for somebody who's making money for a company is in their first six months. And how are they going to do? And how can you actually ramp the performance so that there is less time to full proficiency? Because the difference between a complete newbie and somebody who's been at it and doing well a long time is huge. And in many sales organizations, you actually are churning through some of the frontline sales force, some of the initial folks. So if you can get those folks up to speed more quickly, faster, 
it actually drives impact. And what you can do is you can bring science to those training programs. And some of this is just old-fashioned, good, early sales management that some organizations have mastered. Some of it is actually applying some of the new tools and techniques and thinking about it and thinking also broadly of who your revenue generators are. You know, you can think about it as the cashier at a fast food restaurant. You can think about it as a call center worker. Yeah. You can think about a revenue generator as being the traditional insurance sales force. They all have different flavors, but what all of them have in common is once you assess into the role, there's a ramp period. And being very intentional about shortening that time to impact and using science and proven and some of the new techniques to get somebody up to speed more quickly. I mean, I think that's where we're seeing the, the Well, impact. for sure. I mean, I think impacting things like just your approach to onboarding. So if you think about something like uh, spans and layers, most of the time when you're doing spans and layers, you're assuming that all the people in the boxes beneath the leader are actually competent, right, and trained up, as opposed to making an allowance for the intensity of the period when you're onboarding someone, training them up, giving them, you know, so trying to short-circuit this. I mean, it is remarkable the number of times we've gone and looked at calendar and email data of supposed sales managers and discovered that they weren't actually interacting with the people that they were supposed to be seeing. Like there, there's the sales force, right? Because you give them spans of layers like 20 or 25, right? So there's this, this very thing, the knowledge of what Brian just said, which is you can cut this ramp up period by accelerating their experiences, by giving them just in time training, by giving them real time coaching right after the fact, by giving them cues for behaviors, whether, you know, not a nag, a nudge about what they should be doing. That is all awesome. But the system around that, like the weekly standard work for a leader and then their own daily standard work actually need to work together mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to increase the likelihood. And what about attrition? So this is, you've talked about onboarding. How does, how does this affect attrition? Well, attr attrition, it depends on the nature of the sales force and what the model is. Um, in some sales organizations, uh, attrition negatively hits the bottom line because it's the number of feet on the street that are out there. And, you know, it's meant to be a weed out process. If you made not a lot of money last year, it's kind of a sign that this wasn't meant for you and you move on and they bring in the next class. If you do more to make people more successful and keep more people enroll, then, you know, you make more money. So then the question becomes, how do you stop or slow attrition? So, you know, we were working with a staffing company. One of the interesting things about staffing company is turnover directly hits the bottom line. Staffing companies get paid when they put people to work. If people aren't at work, they don't get paid. So they've made a placement Great and example. then they get paid for every hour that that person works. If that person stops working, then the money stops coming in. So by actually looking at the algorithms of why somebody may quit an assignment, you know, they may quit an assignment because of the pay rate. It may be because of the distance. It may be because of the conditions, but getting underneath in a scientific way one, how do you make the match to the right assignment so you know upfront somebody's more likely to stay longer? And then secondly, understanding the factors of why somebody may turn over, particularly in the first months and working against that. Solving that in a staffing context is the most clear because literally turnover costs you money. You know, but we're seeing analytics there, but we're also seeing it in other Salesforce contexts where stopping attrition uh, can really you know, boost the bottom line. And what's an example of science that would help you anticipate attrition? Look, I, I think data amplifies everything for good and for bad. And I believe that data can absolutely be used for, uh, for good here. It can highlight when you need the right intervention. We had a great thing at a practice meeting where we had partners and associates 
were showing off the sociometric badges where we gave everybody badges. What we were testing was how many partners listened and what the balance between listening and talking was. Did you equate silence with listening? Yeah, well, you can actually tell how close you are. And the badge has a Bluetooth sensor that can tell that, okay, I'm here in a room. And so I'm in proximity to these folks and it can tell who is talking. And so you get the patterns of speech. So you can say that, hey, actually at Bill's table, Bill talked 90% of the time. At at Brian's... Probably true. At at Brian's table, Brian talked 20% of the time and three other people, you know, contributed 20%. And then you had five and, you know, 2% spread across. And then that data can be used to say, Bill, was that your intention to talk for 90% of the time with your team of associates? And Brian, was it your intention? And you can actually use the data to coach somebody on, hey, how do you think about what the balance of interactions are? So it's a developmental tool. It's not a tool that's, you know, designed for judging. I wouldn't make it evaluative, but sometimes it is too much, right? And so do I feel like I need to show up like a leader? Do I feel like I have to have the answers? Do I, you know, whatever, whatever that person's internalizing their role is. So the one is, is it thoughtful or not thoughtful? But even then we can come back to them and go, hey, did you know? It's not just that you were talking too much. You talked over three people, mm-hmm. right? So if the person were really working on it, they can get it from a coaching or we can get it. I'm not saying they would be the nth degree, but if you're in an environment where the people who are in the frontline role know more about the topic than you do, you have got to teach the leaders how to learn how to draw that out of them and actually get that connectivity going. We see it in our engagement managers. The engagement managers who lead really good problem solving acknowledge that the associates and the BAs know way more than they do. And they naturally bring them in. The ones that don't just issue work assignments mm-hmm. and then those people hate the place. So this is in the spirit of making a better environment, which not just because we want to have Kumbaya and Thunderdrum moments, we want people to do better work because we actually know that those kind of environments where they're doing better work and they're engaged and they're bringing their brain, they enjoy more. When they enjoy it more, what don't they do? They don't leave. The notion of a score, though, is implicitly evaluative, right? So the way it's deployed is developmental and to mitigate attrition rates and so forth. But when you're calling something a lifetime value. Well, well I, I think that I think there are, there are two different concepts here. So one is a lifetime value of a customer, which you can absolutely figure out from day one. Sure. There are proven ways of thinking about the lifetime value of a customer. Mm-hmm. I think in the lifetime value of an employee, the way we think about it is more of a, a mental construct. We can think about boosting their performance in the onboarding and training. When people have reached kind of a plateau in their development, we can actually think in targeted ways where their gaps are. And that may be in their coaching. It may be in their coaching of others and actually, you know, how they're building out, you know, the sales force or the team uh, around them, how they're collaborating, how they're working on more complex sales, which often happens. And that requires a new skill set. So it's less about thinking of, hey, the lifetime value of Bill is, you know, a buck 49. You know, as an employer, putting a specific number on it, it's more of the concept that is if you think about the value that an employee is contributing over time, you can raise that at every single point. And most interestingly, for revenue generators, tie it to revenue or tie it to a proxy. And that's where it gets exciting for HR because that's the world they haven't been in. HR has too often been in a world of budget cuts, service provider, 
you know, this is where things are. And for them to turn the tables and say, hey, I can drop an extra 10 million to the bottom line with a $1 million investment in this set of tools, trust me, that's incredible. And then it enables a second conversation, which I think many more HR leaders should do, which is there are parts of the business that are harder to measure. Sales is, is easier. There are parts on innovation, other things where we think these matter as much to the long-term health. So if I were CHRO, what I would do is I would go through all the revenue generators. I would look at the assessments. I would look at how we onboard, how we compare the model. And I would say, hey, based on this assessment, I think there is $50 million in incremental money to the bottom line. If I capture that, I want a third of it to invest in the other functions. If I prove it here, because you can see the numbers here, if I prove it here, I want a third of it back. I'll contribute two thirds of it. I want a third of it back to do the same thing for everybody else. And I think if more HR leaders use revenue, ringing the cash register as the way to prove the value case that everybody believes, we would have many, many more people on this end of the spectrum. You know, if a sale is the thing where it's the test question, what's the precursors of that? This is where all the way back to the idea that we talked about what's critical in these roles that you have to be really good at. And you can gear, you can gear for that. You can select for that. You can reward for that and then pull it through. And the extent to which a person has a life cycle type of job, you know, from prospecting through to closing. Okay, that's great. Then you'd have a longer run. A lot of it is just, it is like job definition, right? What's the role? One of the areas that I think is also interesting and CHROs and CEO shouldn't forget is where talent is literally the limiter to growth. And so, um, you know, at the peak of the last oil uh, boom, I worked for an onshore driller and Mm -hmm. they had the equipment, they had everything they needed. They had more than enough demand. The only thing they didn't have is the driller, like the person in the technical role. Mm -hmm. And so actually getting more drillers was the unlock to higher revenue, more. It was literally the only thing. And there are jobs and there are places where that actually matters. And there it was, took a real analytical approach to how do I get more of these people? Cause it's a competitive market and, and people who can operate drilling equipment can, you know, pick among commodity businesses who, who, have a lot of that, who, who they go right. to. And we ended up doing surveys on employer perception up in Williston, North Dakota, and in Midland, Texas, where we literally went into the bars and we interviewed people. And we said, what are your perceptions of these, you know, list of drilling companies on a whole range of metrics, and then use that to figure out what mattered most. And the hypothesis was what? Pay. But it turns out that pay mattered only that you were in the ballpark. Same thing with... um, Food in the camps. Food in the camp. Yeah. You know, people think, hey, if I have steak dinner every Sunday night, does that matter? What actually mattered most was the perception of safety, Uh, which makes a lot of sense when you think about an operating environment, but may not be the first thing you think of pulling when you're saying, hey, how am I going to grow my company? Perception of safety among my drillers may not be the first thing, but actually that was important. And it was interesting. It was perception. The company was actually as safe, if not safer than their competitors, but their competitors had branded it more. And the other thing was, instead of steak dinners, what people really wanted was bigger coolers. Because when they're away from home, they want food from home. So they wanted bigger refrigerators that they could 
and freezers that they could have wow. their own food from home versus having. That's super interesting because it's so granular. I mean, there's no well, way but it's, that it's, you it's, can... it's, it, Listen, it's, it's understanding if in that model, so in commodity businesses in particular, this is an issue. So you have feast and famine. And like when we were looking at uh, capital productivity work, big projects, you'd run right. out of welders. You'd run out of pipe fitters. Right. So you'd have to, you know, and they tended to follow big projects, right? So you had to compete for them. So in that market where the employee is the prized possession, you are selling to the employee, understanding what they want matters. Sure. What sure. I think is interesting, what Brian was talking about here is it is astonishing the extent to which leaders apply the most kindergarten level of psychology to their employees and assume they just know what it means. Well, if I throw them a buck an hour, they'll take it. I'll throw them five bucks an hour. What part about they've already bought their new truck this year don't you get? They don't care. Right, right. They want to get home. They want to be able to spend the money they're making. They probably want a little bit of flex on ships. You know, things like that, right? Like I, I've spent a bunch of time up in the oil sands. Some of it was, can you bridge me for the two weeks? Because going, you know, I got it's a really haul for me to go back. I'd rather not have the two weeks off. I'd rather have like eight weeks off after a couple of runs. Like, you know, things like that, just so they can get a punctuated period of time. Very interesting. The, the example you used, Brian, is human capital intensive though, right? You guys actually, I mean, it's analog. So there it was super analog. There are 100%. other things where it doesn't have to be as analog, but you have to bring the creativity to get the fact base to figure out, okay, right. like if these, if these are the super scarce resource that I need to understand because they're going to enable me to make more money, then I'm going to go to where that scarce resource is. And if that scarce resource is, you know, Somewhere in the oil patch, that's where we'll go. And it, and it's and that's the creativity you have to use. You see the difference, though, in the types of sectors. So when it was a place that's in retail for consumer, their mindset is towards they go and collect data on the people who buy their stuff. So it's not a, it's not a huge shift to do it to employees. In commodity businesses in particular, the people are treated also like commodities. And you make these broad sweeping assessments of what they want, and they get it wrong regularly. It is remarkable, the patterns here. It's in, I just think one of the interesting things here is if we stop assuming we know and just bother to ask, we do a whole lot better when I'm like getting in a, around to what's important to our employees or potential employees. You know, I was in a smelter, I was in a smelter down in, in, uh, in Tasmania and, uh, the guys were on 12s in 12 hour shifts. And they just said, look, for us, this is the contract we signed. We're living with it. But we know safety, if safety, we don't want them working more than eight. So we're going to pay for 12, but we want them working eight because we recognize that that's actually in the long run going to be beneficial to us because we talked to them about it. And at some point, the crazy heat generated by the smelter and its heavy work and there's real safety concerns because the amount of electricity running through it, we just want to be cautious. There's something here about the mindfulness and how you perceive the employee that I think actually comes back to what you're willing to spend time on. When I'm hearing you talk, I'm thinking about um, discussion that goes on in the workforce about hiring in not, not people from non-traditional backgrounds for certain roles. So, for example, at McKinsey, we talk about the mix of degrees beyond MBA increasing as we look for more creative types um, and as we look to increase the kind of diversity of thought and catalyze innovation and so forth. It would seem to me just intuitively that scoring people scientifically or trying to determine what their lifetime value is would be antithetical to sort of 
hiring outside a traditional profile. But I think what I'm hearing you say is, in fact, this could accelerate that kind of hiring process and get different people from in the past into those roles who might actually be more productive, more successful, et cetera. Absolutely. I mean, if you're intentional about really understanding the skills and the attributes that make somebody successful, then you can be really intentional about finding where those folks are. And if those attributes tend to be more with the MFAs than MBAs, then you're going to go hire MFAs. And you know what? You're actually going to increasingly look for those discontinuities because talent's a competitive advantage. Brian, is there anything you want to add before we close that would be useful to CHROs, et cetera? I mean, just coming back to the idea we had at the beginning, you can increase revenue through people. You can increase revenue through people by getting better people, getting them up to speed faster on you know, the revenue producing functions. So frontline sales, uh, retail, you know, fast food, you know, really thinking about how you're attracting the right folks, screening them, and then developing over the course. And there's also a way of increasing revenue for those subset of roles where if you have somebody in the role, you make money. And if you don't, you don't. So that's the driller. Or in the case of a staffing company, if you have somebody on assignment and they're thinking about, you know, scientifically, what's driving turnover, what drives attraction. But in both cases, a CHRO can go to the CEO and say, this is how I can make you more money this year. This isn't two or three steps down the line. If we have better talent, we'll have better R&D in this. We believe that's true too. But this gives the CHRO the ability to see the bottom line results along with the CFO and the CEO and then use that as the case to make the investment in the other functions where it's harder to see where the immediate revenue or the immediate return is. Right. Bill, anything to add? Yeah, just maybe one thing. I mean, I think, you know, at its core, we've talked a lot about, you know, using data and using analytics and, you know, what you're really saying is there's variability in performance. We'd like to understand that. But on the other side of that equation is there's variability across people. A willingness just to accept that they're not a monolith. They're not all the same. Your capacity to understand them, your employees and your potential employees, can be quite liberating to you as a leader to actually understand the differences between them and then do a better job of matching them, right, to the opportunities at work. And then actually everyone has a better experience and you make more money. And it's a truism we say in some of our work, which is shocking insight. If you run the place better, you make more money. That is, that is so proven out. And it's such a great example of this, which is bother to be humble enough to not assume that you know. Just ask. Understand the employees better. And then you can match them to the work that needs to be done. Yeah. And, and just often people worry about analytics and assessment that being to the detriment of the worker. And I think one of the things that we see is it's to the benefit of the broader set of workers. So if you take that very diligent frontline employee that does what they're told, just talks to the manager, but otherwise wouldn't get hired by that chain or by five other places, and you find a job, turnover goes down, they're happier, they're more fulfilled, and the analytics gives that good frontline worker a home that other kind of intuition-based assessments may not have done. And so by actually doing this, you give a broader set of the population a fair shot to do their best. And when you do, you find pockets of people 
that this is their shot and you're getting a financial reward of this company for having found those people better and you're finding fits for people, some of whom may have found a fit somewhere else, but some of whom may not. And there's a real, I think, narrative here about how these things can be good and inclusive and actually help us overall match the people with the jobs than um, than what we're doing today by intuition and feel. Yeah, really interesting and really important in the context of fundamental transformations in the future of work. I think that's great. Brian, Bill, thanks so much. Thank you. Good time. Folks, we'd love to hear from you. If you have questions for Brian and Bill, please write to us at McKinseyTalkstalent at McKinsey.com. Again, that's McKinseyTalkstalent at McKinsey.com. 